You live around the corner. <laughs> oh, do you? How convenient. I loved it. Listen, a friend getting you laid is a friend getting you laid. Everyone needs a wingman. It's a yeah. beautiful thing. Mad Men, a term coined in the late 1950s to describe the advertising executives of Madison Avenue. They coined it. We are going to Terrytown. And you're going to stare at some antique chair for so long, the buttons are going to seem interesting. And then we'll get a Carvel. Welcome to They Coined It. Hey, Roberta. Hey, Dan. I love the use of Anne Margaret in <laughs> Love Among the Ruins. She's an extraordinary personality in this time period, Anne Margaret. Like, she represents so much. I think they nailed her. So I'm a big fan of just everything Anne Margaret. She's a a Marilyn Monroe type of character in that, in that she's a totem for so much more than her flesh and blood. To me, she's sort of like almost like the alter ego to Marilyn or the quieter version and maybe more wholesome version, you could say, of Marilyn, but still has this outsized aura of what she represents. I never dug her. All my friends like grew up watching Bye Bye Birdie and adored her. Mm -hmm. And I... As this episode opened, I had the same reaction I had the first time and had the, a similar reaction to Peggy Olson's reaction. Um, obviously, it touched Peggy in a in a deeper, more personal way, and, and we'll mm. get to that. But I definitely was like, how old is this woman who's supposed to be playing a teenager, A, and B, her voice is so shrill and annoying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you I, can look at it that way. I mean, th it's that's just that's how it leapt out to me, and I I sort of missed the cultural phenomenon of her. That's the thing. It, yeah, that's the thing. And she's a great talent. I just never was. She always felt a little like that, a little a little fake something, and I never got the like the allure. Well, the very manufactured. It was a very much a Hollywood. She wasn't. She wasn't genuine in a way that we would admire today. That that wasn't part of the persona or part of the allure back then. Authenticity was not part of it. It didn't show up in films until the 70s, really. Especially post-early rock and roll, Elvis, pre-Beatles and mid-60s, right? Because authenticity came more into it and the longer hair and the cultural revolution, all that kind of, there was an authentic side to that. There was an inauthentic side to it, but there was certainly sure. an authentic side that I think the Beatles ushered in. By 64 in America. But before that, post, post early rock and roll, late 50s, pre Beatles, just right smack in the middle of where this is, it's, it's Bobby Rydell and it's these, these character, very manufactured pop artists who weren't rock and roll and weren't going to last. <laughs> but they were very manufactured by the labels and by the studios and everything else. So that, that's probably more what Anne, Anne Margaret represents in, in the moment. And it's so funny that she did Bye Bye Birdie, which was this musical based on Elvis. tribute yeah. to yeah. this based on Elvis, based on this, the fandom, all of that. Right. But a Hollywood kind of, they didn't, I mean, it had, it had that song, you know, what's the matter with kids today? All right. Well, folks, that's all our time for today. <laughs> <laughs> what's the matter with kids today? <laughs> Love Among the Ruins, written by... Catherine Humphreys and Matthew Weiner. Directed by Leslie Linka Glotter. Original air date August 23rd, 2009. Takes place April 25th to May 1st. My birthday. Oh, sorry. April 25th, Roberta's birthday, birthday to May 1st. Remember, uh, they had that party for her in the show. 
uh, May 1st, 1963. So spring of 53. I was not born yet. Just, well, I just want to say that April 25th, 1963 was not yet my birthday. But let's just be clear that April 25th is my birthday. Okay. All right, good. Clear and noted. In the, in the conversation of the best written Mad Men episode, I would say quietly, Love Among the Ruins. This was a revelation to me. I enjoyed this so much. That's interesting. I have no objections to that. I, I look forward to your making the case for that. I don't, again, I have no objections to it, but seriously, I look, I, that's what I look forward to. It's a rich episode for sure. You know, it's always interesting, these early in the season episodes too. It's kind of like, what are we seeding? And, and I will say that this, this episode, watching it in preparation, I am edging towards remembering nothing. <laughs> and it's not that I don't, it's not that I remember nothing, right? It's, it's, it all, it all comes back to me, but I have less recall. And I still think I've probably watched season three more than I watched four, five, six, seven. I certainly remember less. I mean, it's less vivid, which is good. It's great to rewatch yeah. these without any expectations attached. Agree. But the, the, the pilot, and the season three in particular, again, just a, a slight inside baseball. This was the first of, of the next two years that they had. So the idea here is that they can probably take some more time with things, lay longer track for some of the topics and, and themes and so forth. But in a way, you've got the pilot last week out of town. Oh, the, the, se the season I'm premiere. I'm sorry, not the pilot, the season premiere. That, you know, it's got a lot to accomplish, right? You've got you've to lay the big themes out. You have to reintroduce the characters a little bit. There's like work to do. There's like housekeeping to do. This now being the second episode, it's like, it's like okay, now we can downshift. Thank you. This articulates what was sort of there for me as I was thinking about, I was thinking about this episode and I was thinking about last week's episode. If you go back to season one, if you go back to the pilot, you can always go back to that pilot as the, as mission control. Keynote. It lays out season one and it lays out the series. Correct. And then when we talked about the season two finale and the, the last few episodes, because I think we can agree now there's a pattern that it's the last couple episodes that is the, the wrap up of any season on Mad Men. We can just decide that that's a pattern. And we talked about the wrap up of the season. We were able to point back to that season opener, the season two opener. Last night, I was thinking about this, about this season and how the season opener was a little harder to point mm. to. But now that you say this, this episode is more, it's like, see, it's like the first episode sort of lays a foundation. Yeah, it's not a continuation of the last episode. Not that Mad Men works that way. Out of town is almost... D disambiguated from the rest of them a little bit. Not in a bad way, but just in an interesting way, notable way. Between the pair of them, even though they don't they don't feel like a pair at mm -hmm. all. To your point, I think the first episode is sort of just floating there. But I feel like between this pair of them, we will be able to point back 100%. to these two episodes Absolutely. and maybe more this one. Correct. I mean, you've already got you've already got Don in, uh, in the pilot in in the pilot in the series premiere season. We got it. we got it. We know what you mean. Talking Dan. about William Hofstad, he likes to put his names on things he doesn't own. You know, we had just met William once in season two. And it was a fairly innocuous thing. He's Betty's brother. He's got the blonde hair. He's blah, blah, blah. I kind of liked him. Yeah, he was kind of friendly, but innocuous. And now we're starting to get the Don, you know, what's Don really think? Uh, just in a line, just in a little throwaway. It certainly sets up what we see in this episode where, you know, he's he's a little more um, of a selfish, selfish brother to, to, to Betty. It's once again... Betty sort of making an accusation about the kind of person William mm -hmm. is, and you're kind of going, really? 
and then you and then it it bears out. <laughs> they even got Gloria chicken parmesan. Well, great. We'll mail it to her. She's in Boca Raton. She's not coming back. So episode two of the season, we introduce a few things. We've got the patio account that comes into play where Ken Cosgrove is, is pitching that. You've got the Madison Square Garden business. You've got the beginning of the plans for Margaret's wedding, Margaret Sterling's wedding, which is, of course, what date <laughs> let is me that see again? if I can remember. <laughs> it might be adjacent to a historical date in history. Ah, uh, November 23rd. I think that's a Saturday. 1963. That might get called back. I'm not sure. Maybe. The episode's a little bit divided into thirds, basically. There's a third Madison Square Garden bit, there's a third patio bit, and there's a third Betty's family and Betty's dad bit. That's kind of the structure is more or less in thirds. A few other things, but everything seems to tie into those three things. I mean, the Roger, the, the Sterling wedding thing's a little bit less so. I'm trying to figure out in this episode, what is up with Don? What's up his ass? Why is he so agitated? The episode is basically Don at home, Don at work, Don at home. Those are, to me, the kind of the chunks of his journey. And when we saw him last with Betty, everything was sort of really lovely and loving. She's in a mood. She says, I'm in a mood. I'm in a foul mood. I'm in a foul mood. And, you know, you can't blame any largely pregnant woman for being in a foul mood. And then she's got this thing with her father on her mind. What I want to examine, and I... I specifically want your help, Dan. I can't remember what the scene was in the office where you just saw him be tense and jumpy. It is interesting to to examine it from the from that perspective. So you got Don's influence at the office kind of on the wane, in a sense. There's this new dynamic with London. He's got Lane Price coming in his office saying, you've got to save the day with MSG. You've got to save the day with MSG. He goes in, he saves the day with MSG. He brings back MSG. And just as quickly, he's told uh, London, you know, very imperiously, London is, uh, is pulling the rug out. You know, that's devastating. That's just that's just soul crushing, right? That's the point. And it I think it does crush his soul in the moment. Some of his influence is being taken away. At the same time, he's being given more responsibility to get accounts, which started last week. He's being given account work. Yeah, the Bert Peterson line comes up of like, we're all all hands on deck. There was something where he said to Roger, like, what are you doing with your time? What are you doing? (laughs) Yeah, right. What else do you have to do but go to lunch with MSG? Exactly. So in the work world, there's... This combination of pressures where his his he's being disempowered basically in in his creative influence, but at the same time given responsibilities that he shouldn't even fucking have. His work means less. And his work means less. That's right. That's good. He, he can yeah. do his job really well and it means less, which is exactly what happened. And it is. It, that is a soul crushing thing. So I think he's frustrated by that. I think he sees these larger, th- and it ties right in, right? The lunch with MSG was, again, one of the quietly most amazing scenes there there is in this in this series. Talk about that. Well, first of all, you get Roger, right? You get a great examination of what a master account man does. Roger has to turn this ship around on a dime. He has to get this intransigent client, or I should say, unhappy potential client who ran into Paul and got the got the Ada Louise Huxtable speech and the whole thing. And now he has to turn that around. That's Roger's job as an account guy, make everybody feel good. And you see him do it. You see him do it. Roger is just a consummate pro. The guy's about to leave and he has that that amazing <laughs> that amazing line that just would not work today. I only have a minute. Edgar, please. 
Eat our sweet meats. Drink our wine. He's 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 this kind of this unflappable hail fellow well met type of you know you've got to come sit with us all that kind of stuff that was glorious just to see and he gets the guy to sit down and and he obviously hands hands it off to don in a very sort of unglamorous way like i've said all i can say don and don links this msg situation of tearing down penn station and building of msg and they're talking with these developers with his trip to la from last year. You know, I don't know if Don really was thinking about that, if it was a spark of inspiration that kind of brought him there, but he's able to set the tone. I think it sets a tone for a lot of this episode and a lot of this season, and Frank, a lot of what we'll come to see in general, which is New York is in decay. We're Rome and Greece, ancient Rome and ancient Greece. The new world is being built out West. Everybody's excited. There is, you know, this is still early days of Camelot, right? It's it's a lot of that. But he's like, you know, we here in New York, it's it's still same old, same old, stuff's falling apart. And it was. The New York in the 60s was a tough city to exist in. And that, I think, is is obviously what Don's talking about. But he links it to, here's what's new. And your building and MSG and getting rid of Penn Station is the absolute natural course of things. And he basically tells the guy, look, don't act like it's a problem. And he shares the line with the guy, um, you know, if you don't like what's being said, change the conversation, which is a PR tactic, right? I mean, that's public relations more than advertising. But he goes into that as well. Roger turning on what works about Roger. And when he hands it off to Don, I had a moment of like... What the fuck is Don going to like? Oh, what a bad setup. Did you clear that Don's ready to handle it? And all of a sudden, Don brought the magic that we haven't necessarily seen in a while. Then suddenly it was Don Draper. He looked younger to me than he looked at any other point in the episode. It was really something. And if if you don't like what's being said, change the conversation is such a powerful line. And I I suspect, and I mean this sincerely, I haven't thought it through. I'm going to start listening for where that line themes out through this episode, through other scenes, and and through the rest of the season, and I suspect the rest of the series. Well, Peggy echoes it, I think, at, cer- at a certain point, too, right? She Like a couple seasons later, she actually says something almost identical to that, if I remember correctly. We'll get to it, but of course. Yeah, I believe that probably yeah. happens. Don really suddenly was Don again in a way that was, it was very interesting to see him so powerfully connected to his trip to California. That affected him. But that's the Don we know. Like that's Don absorbing his environment, carrying everything with him, being a sponge for culture, being a sponge for the environment. He's, that's that's classic Don, I I think. We're not thinking of, we're not waiting for it to come out, but here it comes and it's, it is brilliant to see. But it's also... It's also a great technique with your unhappy client to say, oh, you don't like people saying bad things about you? I'm giving you permission to tell them to go fuck themselves. That's what this is. And that's what the guy wanted to hear. He didn't want to hear some whiny copywriter like Paul, t- you know, telling what a what a what a disaster everything is. But that was Don's gift in that moment. And that's what won the account. Stepping back, right? It's Don at work. And it's Don saving the day like he's asked to. It ends up being all for naught, of course, which is that soul-crushing thing. But this love among the ruins thing, it's the crumbling of New York. It's ancient Rome. It's this passage of time that things move on. 
what what's for the good and what's not for the good what's inevitable and what should we keep like this is that when i talk about the circles of these cycles rather cycles that that keep going these are brushstrokes in that larger 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 story that this show explores so to me that's that part of the soul of this episode in particular that makes it so great and so this penn station issue looms large in the episode and that, that ties in perfectly into that Love Among the Ruins theme. So we're going to keep exploring that. But, you know, Penn Station, that was a big deal. That was a big, big deal. I grew up New York City oriented, but a Jersey girl. I mean, my grandparents were all from Brooklyn and in Brooklyn, and, and we would go to the Museum of Natural History. And at some point, I became a Rocky Horror kid and would go into the city when I was in high school and in my 20s. But... I never got good at the subways. I never really understood the world of the transit until much more recently, the last 10 so something years. That said, I kind of missed the whole Penn Station memo until I started traveling through it and talking with other people who traveled through it and were like, oh my God, it was so ruined and it's so ugly. And, and it is, it's a beast. You've got Grand Central. I mean, I'm, I'm saying some of this for our listeners who are not New Yorkers, right? Just like a little FYI, Grand Central is beautiful. Port Authority is a dumpster fire and Penn Station is soulless and ugly. And I didn't know that there was a, a route to that. I didn't know the history that it had ever been beautiful. And I was as I was looking at those drawings from the from the lefties mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> who were protesting, I had no idea. So that's one thing. Also, didn't they just redo some? I think there's there's the, the renovation of Penn Station sort of is, has been a 30 year project. And that's 30 the last 30 years, which, of course, it's been 60 years since they tore down the original Penn Station. Backing up even further, in Manhattan, right in Manhattan, there are two main train terminals. There's Penn Station, which is on 34th and uh, 7th, between 7th and 8th. And there's Grand Central Station, which is at 42nd between Park and Lex. So one's on the east side, one's on the west side. They're about 12 blocks apart, excuse me, eight blocks apart. Port Authority, which Roberta mentioned, is a bus depot, which is on 42nd Street, uh, also on the west side. These days, Penn Station is Amtrak, which is the whole country to the west, including New Jersey Transit, which is commuter lines, and Long Island Railroad, which is commuter from the east. It, it goes all the way to, to, to Penn Station. And then north of the city, Westchester, Metro North, and Connecticut, and all that comes through Grand Central Station. So that's the general layout of commuter and, and, and passenger trains. So that's where Don Don would go Grand Central because we've seen those stops sometimes in some episodes and it's the same line. So that's the general layout of the kind of transportation situation in terms of what this is. And Penn Station is how, is how the entire country came into New York. Coming in through Penn Station was, as I understand it, like an event. It would be if you want if you want to see a really great piece about the old Penn Station, the Rick Burns documentary New York. That was on PBS. Rick, Rick Burns, not Ken Burns. Ken Burns' brother Rick did New York. Oh, who knew? Like a ten-part New York series, mega mega thing. It's really well done, and there is a full analysis of the old Penn Station and tearing it down and that whole bit. Fabulous episode, so I highly recommend it. And it was this kind of this moment of like, oh my god, we could really lose a lot of these old beautiful structures. Like people can come in and not have any barriers to losing our heritage again love among the ruins right it's like yeah it's this is who we are and these are our public buildings and they should belong to the people and what do we have in the way of historical preservation anymore new york city just keeps getting particle board over particle board over the old stuff 
Yeah, and I wanted to talk about the the Paul aspect of this <laughs> because 100% he was ridiculously inappropriate in terms of being client-facing. You don't even bring Paul into the meeting if you know that's how he feels. I mean, that's insane, right? He was It was ridiculous, but he was on the right side in terms of what you're talking about. He was an asshole. I'm not defending Paul at all. He was an asshole, but it was an interesting way to have that conversation. Yeah. To bring the the sort of you're you're losing the beauty and you all and and then to show those headlines you the fascists and this and that part of what the broader thing that that came to me out of all those interactions the first meeting and and the second meeting with these guys I, I think I've shared this before I have always been a liberal but I have always been a liberal who never paid attention and who never watched the news and who couldn't name a senator I voted every four years. And maybe every two years in between, yep. and maybe not. Like, I've never been conscientious. And so these kinds of conversations were background noise to me, and I never really focused on them. And now listening to mm. the dialogue in this episode, the scene with Paul, and then lunch, these guys are so how we got where we are today. Oh, 100%. It's, be it's beautifully rendered. It's absolutely about how we got to where we are today, without question. You know, it's not like I thought we got here where we got to today from from one election. I mean, you know, I knew that it could repeat, but I never heard it. Yeah. You know, here's Matthew Weiner 15-ish years ago mm -hmm. pointing to 1963. And it's it's just, it's the same conversations over and over. It's the fascists, it's the hippies, it's the, it's the, yeah. it's the socialists, the commies, it's this, that. It's just wild how it loops and loops and loops and we're still stuck. Uh, absolutely. And, and, and this is, <laughs> the series is like almost a historical compendium to these events. And for more context, you know, you look at it and you go, well, we still have Grand Central Station, which is the old building. It's been renovated. It's got amazing shops and they've really modernized it and it's still in use. It's gorgeous. They've done a great job of modernizing it while keeping the integrity of, of the beautiful old structure and the clock tower and the arcs and the, it's gorgeous. And it'll never be destroyed. To fill in the blank, it's after Penn Station was destroyed and after people realized, oh my God, we don't have anything protecting the real treasures of the city and what we're about and what the, you know, these things that we're going to regret. There were laws made, historical preservation laws led mm. by, interestingly, Jacqueline Onassis. She was a huge proponent of salvaging and keeping heritage and public structures and things like that, was very influential in getting that done. So again, go back to the Rick Burns thing. So I said to them, it's so crowded in here, I feel like I'm on the subway. <laughs> so the episode really starts with this, we talked about Anne margaret before. Anne margaret with a hyphen, by the way. We didn't even bring up the hyphen. That's, okay. I think, essential to Anne margaret All right, well, that way. changes. Can we, we have to re-record. Let's <laughs> <laughs> go back and talk about the hyphen. I mean, if we're talking about Anne margaret and we didn't have a hyphen in our version. Who so... does that? I mean, back then, especially. I mean, Anne, I'm not Anne margaret I'm Anne margaret it's kind of a whole different thing. Okay. So Anne Margaret with the hyphen kicks us off with this, you know, <laughs> it's not like it's the kind of thing that everybody references pop culturally today. Bye Bye Birdie a little. Like I'd never seen that before. I saw the movie, you know, 20 years ago. I don't remember that scene or her whole song and dance. So just opening with it, like as a cold open was really, it was impactful. You, you're immediately just dunked into this vibrancy and youth, but they, they cut it off and they start talking about it. And Peggy's lost. She doesn't get it. I would say that Peggy is not lost, that <laughs> Peggy is defiant, that Peggy um, is saying, fuck you people for falling for this and thinking this has anything to do with 
advertising. And also the client has a very stupid idea because the client does have a very stupid idea. It might not have been right for patio, but the concept, the tactic of, hey, let's mimic something that's in the popular culture and kind of appropriate it and make it ours and use someone in that same vein happens all around us. That's every, that, That's practically advertising for the last 60 years. But with a spin, Peggy is sitting there going, can we at least, can we make fun of it? There's ways of incorporating popular culture into your marketing that are effective. She's saying this as we're seeing it, which right. is to basically exactly mimic it with somebody who looks and sounds. Now, we haven't seen the results, but to just fake it with no spin is a dumb idea. There's kind of two issues. There's like, is it appropriate for what does it have to do with patio? Mm-hmm. And then there's just this idea of cutting and pasting with a lesser Anne Margaret. Does that make any sense? Yes, she's being defiant. But I think that defiance is what's blinding her from getting it because she's a smart cookie. And she's not someone who doesn't, who shouldn't understand why, you know, sex sells, Don, you know, that whole thing. Like it's sort of, there is this one dimensional aspect to it. And, and Don kind of calls her out on that when, when, when she shows in the, the clip. But in the moment, she's very much, she is defiant and she is resisting whatever the charms of Anne Margaret are. And Sal, I love Sal's line. He's talking about the Broadway actor and, and he's like, whoever that was on Broadway, you know, he, you know, she was good, but she doesn't have that. And that, in capital letters, is what we're talking about. Patio is trying to replicate that, and they're going to fail because they're not going to have Anne Margaret doing it, and which is the specialness of an Anne Margaret and what a star means, uh, right? You know, you got, a, you got a little something called it, my dear, you know, <laughs> and, and that, that's what Anne Margaret has. So yeah, so they're bound to fail if they're trying to copy it frame for frame, as Ken says. So we can play that out right now in the boardroom of our of our minds. But wanting to do it, wanting to capture that, wanting to grab that and say, I want to pitch that for my new product, shit, that there's nobody who wouldn't want to try and do that. I don't know that that's true, that nobody wouldn't want to do that. You know, <laughs> objectively, it's a it's an arguable idea. The issue with Peggy goes back to things in previous seasons, I think particularly in season one, which is who is this for? It's women who are going to be buying men their deodorant, right? That's right. Totally like that. Diet Pepsi. (laughs) Do we know if Patio was real? It was real, and I think it was a short-lived thing, but yeah, it was real. I've never heard of it. Never heard of it. It was real. I love how she's all over, we're stuck with a terrible name. Terrible name. and She's she's so good with the naming things. She understands that it's women who are the audience. What she doesn't understand is, basically, men want to fuck her, women want to be her. Well, Don says that. Men want to be with her, women want to be her. This turns into, for Peggy, this exploration of trying on wanting to be her. Mm-hmm. What what we discover, what we more than discover in this episode, what we really see is that Peggy lives the pain of not being pretty. Being on the outside. That that is a driver of who she is in a way that we, it's been hinted at when Marilyn Monroe died. She didn't understand. Or no, it was before, it was before, it was a comment. She said it to Bobby Barrett about Marilyn Monroe before she died. She doesn't understand how beautiful women Think and feel. Could have any problems. She thinks they are a different breed of person than she is. We saw that in the recording sessions, right? It's a a constant with her. But also living in that world. We're all living in that world if we're not that gorgeous, right? And Peggy 
has to deal with these accounts and these people and these kind of universe that she's in a way stuck in because of how talented she is as a writer of trying to put herself in their shoes and understand and get and that's Peggy's kind of existential struggle and we see that very explicitly in that scene in her apartment where she's singing into the mirror and I I never thought that much of it I was sort of like oh I get it yeah she's like mimicking and but the pain it was so hard for her to do that she couldn't get undressed and do it <laughs> She couldn't go home, take off her clothes and put a bag over her head and really assess herself, right? She doesn't have the freedom to get naked in her own bedroom. What is being 16 and loving pop culture and your favorite song and your favorite band? It's about standing in front of your mirror with a tennis racket as a guitar, as a hairbrush, as a microphone, and not caring about anything, whether you're beautiful or not, but letting it go. That's the fantasy of teens and pop culture. Peggy does not have that DNA. She is not built that way. She's not wired that way. We like to think everyone's wired the same way, but we're not. And she's not. And it's hard. And it's hard because when you can stand in front of your mirror, or you did as a 15 or 16 year old, and you rocked out and you played air guitar and you, you know, flailed around your room like a nut because you were so into the music or whatever it is, you then carry that with you. So that when if you're in advertising or you're selling a product or whatever it is, you can tap into that freedom of a patio or an Anne Margaret or something. And Peggy doesn't have it. She can't. It's almost like Peggy has never dreamed of things she's never seen, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, really, she's, she's, totally. and I'm thinking about, I'm just imagining her childhood. She probably always shared a room. I mean, Anita's kids share a room, right? That's just part of how they grew up. Sure. There was probably an incredible, an enormous amount of body shaming. I guess. I don't mean like fat shaming, body shaming. I mean, Catholicism and masturbation. What was the conversation in, in 1950? And I'm not saying she wasn't also wired that way. She's repressed. I'm just remembering now her dancing at the party when when mm -hmm. Pete said what he said to her. I mean, she was so loose and so free. That's as close as she has ever gotten, right? And apparently that's as close as she's ever gotten. And she was immediately smacked down for it. But her, her inability to connect with, I'll say Anne Margaret, but that's not what I mean. But that that vibe is the central part of her. And I, and I don't think it's a mystery why when you connect it with what she ultimately does in this episode in terms of going home with that boy is a little out of character because we've seen her avoid doing that and sort of knowing the consequences. But she's opening up a little bit for her in doing, I mean, look at the way she grabbed his hamburger and did all that. I, I think she's recognizing how difficult it is to be totally free and lose yourself for a moment. Peggy doesn't lose herself. That's why she's trying to put patio, you know, let's make, can we be ironic about it? Can we do this with it? And kind of be somewhat jaded. She's not able to see the sort of unironic uh, joy that the Anne Margaret clip represents. That's what she can't connect with, which is a bit of a blind spot for her because she's so good at what she does. That's why I say she doesn't get it. She's so good. There's, there's nothing about this she couldn't get. And Don, I think, has an impact on her in that conversation. It's pure. It makes your heart hurt was sort of the final prying open. The one-two punch of women want to be her. And then it's pure, it makes your heart hurt. 
All of this leads to her trying something on that, to your point, she's never tried on before. She's never strapped on that air guitar. So, you know, she watches Joan flirting with those men and (laughs) saying that that little joke that comes so easy for her. And what's fascinating is this is such a great creative mind. Peggy has a truly gifted creativity. Ideas just flow from her and there's no flowing in her body about her own self. There's no like that she, in order to flirt, she has to have a prepared line. That's right. She stole it from Joan. I give her all the credit in the world for walking into that bar. I was reminded of Betty walking into that bar. Kind of, yeah. Trust me, we know where to go. (laughs) A woman walks alone (laughs) into a bar. You don't have to be wanting to get laid, but if it's what you want, that is where you go. Yeah. Before COVID and and before apps, right? now. The boy was adorable. He was adorable. He was funny and flustered and young. He's Peggy's twin. Yeah, totally. He's in college and assumes she's a secretary. But the hamburger, that (laughs) was pure, unadulterated, flowing through flirtation. That was Peggy's version. It was great. Are you kidding me? I'm going to take a bite out of this. Yeah, if he snarls at me and, and gets up from the table disgusted. I'm fine with that, you know? <laughs> also, I'm hungry, probably, <laughs> right? Yeah, sure, right. But it was definitely a flirt, a flirtation. I think she knew she was going to, it was going to score points. I mean, it looked like a move and she, and it was <laughs> completely right. spontaneous. And it was like, she let the spigot spig, <laughs> you know? And so, and that's what came out, yeah. you know, after, after, after having a scripted line. All of which came after recognizing how uncomfortable she is in her skin. This felt like that other thing that happens in the episode, but in a way it was connected to Peggy's story, Larger, and Patio and Anne Margaret scene. It all, the dominoes, right? I mean, that's, you could put it all right back to that. And what's the line that she, she ends up repeating? Guess I'll always care. Guess I'll always care. She's <laughs> kind of wallowing in this. I'm always going to wish I was something I'm not. I'm always going to be longing, yearning, all of that. Very good. I did not. I did not. Mm -hmm. You know, to me, I mean, it's a lyric from the song and it repeats. So I didn't, I didn't take that deeper meaning. That's really, that's really great. So she goes home with this guy. I love how his friend sets him up. You live around the corner. Oh, do you? How convenient. I loved it. Listen, a friend getting you laid is a friend getting you laid. Everyone needs a wingman. It's a beautiful thing. She then, as uncomfortable as a conversation as it is, asks if he has a condom. Mm. And it was funny because up until then, I'm like, I'm kind of thinking, is she, she's, of course she's on the pill. But now I'm thinking she's terrified of the pill. What we've talked about is she took the pill that afternoon and had sex that night and didn't understand why it didn't work. And I wonder if she's never figured that out. That could be, or it could just be like... She has a decision that she's never having sex again, which she just changed her mind today. No, I, I, I think it's more like, I'm not going to leave anything to chance. I, I still want, I'm, I still need to have sex. I'm 23 and <laughs> ready to go and I'm going to live my life, but I'm not going to do it without feeling protected. And, and just the pill alone might not feel protected. Oh, I see what you're saying. I don't think that would be it. I don't, I don't look at her as uneducated. I look at her as... Overly cautious. I think she either trusts the pill or she doesn't trust the pill. I don't know. I don't think combining these things was a thing until much later. I mean, I, I could be wrong about this. That that was not my read. My read was she's not on the pill. I mean, it's kind of irrelevant because it's not really part of the action whether she's on the pill or not. 
I don't think it's irrelevant. I think it's how did we get here tonight and, and what happened next? I'm not asking myself, is she on the pill or not? I'm asking myself, why isn't she on the pill? So my two answers are either, either she's really decided she's never having sex again, like not really, but there's no chance I'm going to need it for the foreseeable future is A, or B, she really doesn't trust it because she really doesn't understand how it works. And I agree that Peggy doesn't strike me as somebody who would walk around uneducated, but at the same time, what's really readily available? She's not in pharma. Medical journals are not, are not something that regular people can read. You're only getting your information through your doctor and Reader's Digest, and she may not trust anybody with that anymore. I found the uncomfortable conversation that she was willing to have, part one, do you have a Trojan? And it was just hard for her to get it out of her mouth. (laughs) And she had to say Trojan because she couldn't say rubber. Mm -hmm. Nobody said condom back then. They were rubbers. That was what anybody from Brooklyn knew to call them. Prophylactics. Yeah, sure. (laughs) And then part two, we can do other stuff, which is very bold. That was the liberated part, right? That was the... The make good, <laughs> you could After say. After being so connected to how painful her own views of herself are and her how restricted she is, to then watch her be so strong was liberating on multiple counts. And Peggy went and got herself some, some whatever. Yeah, I think it was a real, it was kind of a triumphant moment for her. But that's part of Peggy's development. This is all brushstrokes in that larger yes. development of Peggy professionally, Peggy personally. And uh, it all started with that film of Anne Margaret, which I think is is just just insane, it's just insane. All right, let's uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we will head to Ossining and all the goings on in in the Draper household. Ossining, nineteen sixty three. So we've seen this storyline from Betty's father beginning to get in the grips of dementia. We've talked about that on on this podcast. But it's obviously advancing. And she says, you know, my father's not well and she wants to invite him for whatever, a few days, I guess. And apparently Gloria has left him. That's a big deal. Oh, Gloria's <laughs> left him, exactly. So they come up and it's a very family, that's what a family would do, right? I have my brother bring up and and everybody stays at the house. That's something that would happen. And it's beautifully drawn too. You've got their kids are so crazy. And then, you know, at one point when they're talking, Don has to do the the dad thing of opening the bedroom door and screaming out. <laughs> Cut that out. So funny. Right? Just... But, it, but you know, it's, I'll, I'll tie it into this other thing. We talk about Don at home, Don at work, et cetera. Don at home, you know, it's apparent that Don to Betty's family is a bit of a, I'll call it like a cipher. I don't really think they know what to make of him. We had that comment that we brought out. He has no people, right? Like that's obviously on their minds. The fact that Don has no family and no anything. Right. William says he didn't have anybody at the wedding. So this is now another hint at how the Hofstadt's view this guy. Yet, I think Don's a little bit of, but at the same time, he's a little bit of a, he looms very large. There's a few references. I didn't write them all down, but like when Betty says, Trudy doesn't get a, is it Judy or Trudy? Now I can't remember. This one is Judy. There's two Judys. Right. Pete's brother, Bud, his wife is Judy and William's wife is Judy. And I, I said it last time. I love this Judy. I think she's wonderful. 
She is wonderful and she's very sweet. But they said, Judy doesn't get a vote. Neither does Don. You know, there's this kind of tit for tat. You get a sense that Don is kind of this big shot to, to these guys professionally. I think they recognize that he's a very important guy and this executive and obviously his looks. And it's just, I think he still is imposing to them. Yeah. He's definitely he's definitely imposing. I mean, I think what happens at the end is is something else, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. I don't know that they have some some version of respect for him. I th- I think they do. Maybe. You know, like the way the way William is when the when the uh, sink is clogged. You know, he's almost like in fear of Don when he walks in that house. Don, it's nothing. We got it. He mm-hmm. really doesn't. He doesn't want to. You know, get Don's wrath. Interesting. So Don at home is still a bit of a kingmaker and and the boss in this moment anyway. That's interesting about Love Among the Ruins. You've got this shitty marriage and you've got this shitty situation with the father. What Don does, ultimately, he strong arms William. Betty's concern is that she doesn't want to give up the family house, the house they all grew up in. I wasn't clear if she didn't want to give it up as much as she didn't want it to go to William, which I thought was weird that that William would somehow get it. I mean, she does have her attachments to stuff and things, and that's true. That was a little confusing for me. Like, right, would she be happy if William had it, but it stayed in the family? Like, I think that wasn't, that's not her first option either. I think she wants to, I don't know, she probably sees herself moving there one day. Who I, I don't know. But it's this emotional thing for her, clearly. Yes. And I think I think her fear is mostly that William will sell it because that's because William is not sentimental about the house. And you, you had said earlier, is he selfish about the house? Hmm. I don't think we have enough evidence to know. First of all, there's a there's a dynamic between William and his father. I guess he works for the dad. We don't know what the business is. We don't know what the industry right. is. But he already works for him. That's right. right. And and William, as you might imagine, there are father son businesses where the relationship is fantastic where it just brings them closer, or they are already close, and this is just an expression of that, and there's no friction. And then there's others where there is friction, or the relationship might not have been so great to begin with, who knows? Gene's a son of a bitch. What was the line that Don said? Don said that, called him a son of a bitch. Did he say son of a bitch? And William says as much about, you know, you know what it's like to work for that guy every day? You know, that kind of thing. So there's clearly some friction. It makes William uncomfortable, the fact that he has to work for this guy and kind of be under his thumb, you can just imagine. So that's William's state of mind. But we don't really know the full story about William's intentions. We just don't. It's just, it's just, mm. we only know it through Betty. Kind of like, is is Gloria a horrible person or not? We only get Betty's side of it. We we get very few glimpses of Gloria, but we get a whole lot of Betty's opinion. I still disagree with you on Gloria. I, I got the sympathy of the position she was in, but I did not like Gloria. And you don't not call somebody's kids when their father <laughs> okay. is, goes to the hospital. We will cut that into the episode and repost it so that we can get that in <laughs> the episode. But the, the point here about William is that we're, we're getting mostly Betty's version of the issue and very little of it from William. The only thing that sort of supported my viewpoint on this or Betty's viewpoint on this is how William did cave. To Don. Oh, God. To Don. And to me, that shows a guilty conscience. It was an unclear threat, right? That's where I saw, like, he's up to no good. That's probably the clearest thing of all is that. And that's indirect, but it probably can be relied on, I think. That's, that's a really, why, why cave if you're, if that wasn't where your head yeah. was at anyway? It's almost like, uh, you know, engaging with the people who are against Penn Station is proof of a guilty conscience, yes. right? <laughs> That's right. So, so here's William engaging. Change the conversation. <laughs> and he and he didn't do it. But I'll tell you, uh, Don did to William what he did to Bobby Barrett. 
basically. <laughs> I mean, it was. The, oh, my God. It was, it wow. was a, a not so veiled physical threat <laughs> virtually. I'm going to beat the shit out of you if you don't if you don't do it this way. Don, whose power and influence is on the wane in the office, is able to manipulate, you know, what's going on at home. And for the again, love among the ruins for the sake of what his wife wanted. He's got a pregnant wife who's miserable and unhappy. And this larger issue with the house is troubling her. And he fixes it. All of a sudden, you're seeing a marriage not dissimilar to what you saw a a full season ago. Right around episode two of season two is where you start to see the like, are you going to start this fight again? Are you going to kind of that? Don is resigned in this marriage where he's just getting bitched at and nagged at the whole time. And you're seeing reasons. She's pregnant and unhappy. And he's really concerned about money, even though he suddenly has a lot of it. He's agreed to some redecoration, but he's he's still like really concerned about money. So there's that tension. And maybe that has to do with that he's not happy at work. I mean, I think part of that has to do with that he's weird with money, but he knows he's not going to get laid off and he knows he doesn't have a contract. Maybe it's the hobo, actually. I think it's 100% the hobo. That's it. I had to think that. It's a child of the depression on top of everything else. I mean, it's just- it's That's right. That's fair. No question. But what I, lo- what I love about the scene with William, even just the way it starts, it, again, you just, you can't, you can't ignore- throwaway lines. And that's why I say it's one of the best written episodes of of the whole series. They walk into Don's office, Don's home office, and William looks at that old globe. Don, how old is this thing? How old is the world, Don? Right? Love among the ruins. Ancient Rome. Ancient Greece. How old is this world, Don? And Don, who's been struggling at work, unsure, what does this all mean? I don't care. Don, how old is this? I don't care. I'm about to digitally penetrate. Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. I'm ready to strong arm you into what the fuck I need you to do, William. And let's cut the crap. So he's literally casting off this argument about the old versus the new. I'm not dealing with the old. I'm dealing with the right now. Here's what you're going to do. Get the fuck out there and tell your sister what you're going to do. Perfect. Again, sort of in part one of Don at home, everything's miserable. And as a viewer, it's so disappointing Haven't we been here before? We've been here before. Last week was so sweet with the two of them. Even though we know how they got back together, you want to see you want to see something better and you're not seeing it. And it, it feels like there's no love. And talk about a grand gesture. I mean, what Don does here is again, I don't disagree that part of the motivation is to just reclaim some power in his life. And make Mm. a fucking decision. Mm. But it is a decision that is going to suck for everyone, but definitely for him. He's laying himself down on the tracks for this. It was a combination of selflessness, an incredibly loving gesture. A loving gesture that recognizes that he knew what Betty wanted and she had not said it. Not at all. She would never. I mean, it would not that she would never, but she wasn't there. There's no other time in this relationship or this marriage that Don has intuited what Betty needed to say and said it for her. He's never advocated for her like that, ever. No. It was absolutely beautiful, and it was love among the ruins, as far as I could see. That's a great tie-in. Absolutely. Daddy, Don and I want you to live here with us. Elizabeth. Honey, I'm not that blue. Just for a while. I think you need a little vacation. So Don's now shed this old versus new ancient world 
so to speak. To your original question, you know, what's Don thinking? What's he doing? What's with Don? Why is he so jumpy? Why is he so agitated? What's wrong? Yeah, and he can't get past this out of this transition, mm-hmm. basically, if you want to say, from the old to the new. And when he says, I don't care to William, that's his coming out of the phone booth kind of in the Superman yeah. <laughs> outfit a little bit, both literally at home in the, in the way that he saves the day. But it's also a new Don, I think, we that we're seeing at the at the field day. That's Don that we're seeing touching the grass and looking at the teacher. Nothing creepy about that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's actually interesting. In your old versus new, that teacher was a great representation of both old and new. She's, she's dressed as something ancient, right? She's dressed as this bearer of the maypole. The old celebration, right? Old pagan sort of, right? This ancient, ageless, mm-hmm. timeless rather. And the new, where a teacher could walk around looking like that, you know, her hair was yeah. her hair was not ironed. She looked like a what will become a hippie. That's right. And he made the right connection, connecting to the earth in that way. <laughs> to me, that was never creepy. To me, it was in the moment. It's beautiful. In the moment, it's beautiful. And in this episode, it's beautiful. <laughs> we'll get there. I just love the little that little representation of. You know, it's 1963, it's springtime, it's Ossining, New York, it's uh, whatever, the third grade class or whatever Sally's in. They've practiced and they do the maypole and the little speech. By the way, a maypole is a bitch to dance. It is, it is, you have to practice. I'm doing one right now. And it, you're right. It's not People easy. get tangled up. I've been in maypoles. It's, it's a whole thing. <laughs> Where'd you get that scar across your face? It's a big maypole accident. <laughs> no, people crash. You have to keep eyes up. It's a whole, I'm telling you, I've danced maypoles. It's a thing. It's not as easy as it looks. <laughs> There's always a training session and there are several points to review to not fuck it up. And then what you get is- Drag brunches, piano bars, maypoles. <laughs> oh, honey. Rocky Horror. It's all there. Have it's I talked about rehab there. yet? <laughs> anyway- so, yeah, so 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 the reason why this episode for me is just so um, thoroughly satisfying is because all of these things all tie together. I think you mentioning Don across all of them is really observant. He's the thread between all of it. But you've got this real overarching, this big, these cycles I keep talking about that just are very present in this episode. And, and the way that this series ties things from the past to the present to the future and back again is very unique and it's really, really well done. You know, the one scene we didn't talk about that I just want to throw out there and <laughs> get your take is lunch with the prices or dinner, rather, dinner, dinner with the prices. Right? Yeah. Old and new. A lot of old and new there. Well, it's so beautifully uncomfortable. That That's it's the part right. of it. <laughs> and Lane has to come in and talk about what a successful dinner it was with Don the next day. Wives and your my wife is so comforted by your wife and nobody wanted uh, right, to be there. Exactly. And it, it was... It was the, it was so <laughs> awkward and you kind of couldn't figure out what was happening right. and why it was happening and there was no reason it was just like let's get the wives together and d- can you tell me about schools nope <laughs> got nothing i don't live in manhattan <laughs> well and it brought betty into the into the office which is so rare and by the way who knows how to treat betty in the office the way betty Joan wants to be treated does. Joan. it was fabulous <laughs> right she's taking her around treating her like like a goddess. And that's what Betty wants to begin with. So that's the best part to me. And also just like shout out to all of Betty's beverages and cigarettes. 
<laughs> Special <laughs> mention. Water, wine, right, the whole bit. All right. Let's take a quick break and come back with quotes. Quick run around the maypole, and we'll be back. Be careful. Eyes up. Eyes up. (laughs) Over, then under, then over, then. All right. We have made some changes over at our Patreon page, including early episodes, expanded conversations, and opportunities for VIP invites to special live events that we will be doing on Zoom with you with audience Q&A. Or if you'd just like to support us, you can do that too. That's patreon.com slash theycoinditpod. Did we mention merch? Did we promise merch? Okay, the merch isn't ready. It's coming very, very soon and you will hear about it here. We've got some really cute stuff coming. And hey, if supporting us at Patreon doesn't work for you, that's totally fine. We still love you and we do not want you feeling any kind of guilt at all. But if you happen to, then head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a fantastic review. Anyway, let's get back to it. What's your quote, Dan? So I am really in love with the conversation that Don and Peggy had when she shows him the Anne Margaret film, the the Bye Bye Birdie. She thinks he's going to see it the way she sees it, that it's this inappropriate thing for patio and isn't it horrible and blah, blah, blah. But Don, not unlike Sal in this case, sort of immediately is like, no, this is what people want. Like, this is what we do. And she makes some kind of reference to what they do as being art, right? That it's not artistic. And his response to her, which is my line, you're not an artist, Peggy. You solve problems. Leave some tools in your toolbox. And again, for a show that really takes itself seriously with regard to showing the artistic process, that is such a huge line. For Peggy to hear. I think I think it's one of those things that takes a while to sink in, the way things for Peggy sometimes need to be repeated for her to really grasp. But that idea that no, we're we're uh we're hired guns, Peggy. We 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 deliver what is asked for, first and foremost. We lead when we can and this is Don, right, who who tells the Belgio Lee guy to, you know, jump off the bridge or whatever. Sometimes they are the same thing, or part of what your job is is to convince them that you are giving them what they asked for. They just didn't ask for the thing they actually needed or whatever. It's a whole, it, there's a little bit of a mind fuck there. Sometimes what they ask for and what they need are the same thing. And sometimes they're not. You better be real careful and on solid ground when you go the other way. And so Don knows, we've seen Don go the other way to fantastic success because he's done this and that's his real, you know, innate gift. Peggy, we know, has the tools to get there, but She's not able to always distinguish just at this point. That's the line that Don's drawing. Leave some tools in your toolbox. You're not Matisse here. We're not doing a work of art. We're doing a work of commerce, for God's sake. Sometimes it can be art when everything lines up. Sometimes we have to do a shot-for-shot remake of an Anne Margaret scene. We're here to sell product. That's right. Anyway, love that line. Love how it sits with Peggy and love what it says about the process. Speaking of how it sits with Peggy, my quote, Peggy saying to Hamburger Boy, and I work for a jerk. That was a revelation. One of the things I'm looking at in this episode, and as we talked about in this, in this pair of episodes, it's like, what are we setting up? What's coming? Where are we going? Yeah. And <laughs> I work for a jerk is new. It's not new that he's a jerk, but, but your line, <laughs> you're not an artist, we solve problems, check your toolbox. It sounded like Don doing that mentor thing that she takes and yeah. she absorbs 
And sometimes it feels harsh and sometimes it doesn't, but she absorbs it and she incorporates it. That great scene where they're watching the where they're watching the film together. Even more, she convinces him to see it. She's like, you see everything, which is Don's hot button. Oh, you're telling me I'm not up on things? All right, let's go watch. It's just a next level indication of the complication of this relationship. It's the first signal yeah. we're ever seeing. She's done nothing but defend Don. You know, I don't question what Don does, but all of a sudden what comes out of her mouth when she's at her loosest... And when nobody knows what she's saying is, and I work for a jerk. And it was just, it was shocking. It was. It stood out. It stood out because it's not something she would have said before. But I don't look at it as that, okay, from this moment forward, Peggy realizes that Don's a jerk. I look at it as in that moment, she was expressing for the first time that he's a jerk. And another moment might come where he's okay. He's still my mentor. I'm still going to defend. Like, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not like some total shift in the relationship, but it's like the first chink in the armor. The first chicken. Exactly. In the armor. We've never seen it. We've never heard her speak that way. And like I said, it's interesting that it comes out in a moment when she's loose. Her defenses are down and her she's just talking like she talks, except she never does. She's always so measured. Everything out of her mouth is always so measured. And here's what comes out for the first time. So hey, give Becky a burger. You never know what's going to happen. Really fantastic episode. Really great. Oh, I loved it. Loved it. Loved it. All right. What do we have next week? My old no! Kentucky home. Well, kids. <laughs> Game over. <laughs> dig out the shoe polish oh, and watch God. my old Kentucky home. Oh, God, you have to really watch that. Okay. Hoofah. Hoofah, people. Hoofah. That's what we have to say. If you like your musicals, it's practically a musical. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my and your old fashions. Oh, so much is coming. Oh, can't wait. I'm watching it now. We're recording. We're recording tonight, Roberta. Let's do it. Roberta. Let's do it. Okay, gotta go. <laughs> Thank you so much. We'll see you next Thanks, time. everybody. Hey, Coiners, we're so glad you're enjoying the show. One of the best ways to support us is to give us rave reviews on Apple Podcasts and to share us on social media. A great way to literally support us is at our Patreon, where we've got some extra content. Patreon.com slash theycoinditpod. If you're able, we love you either way. And we love your comments and your questions. Bring them on. Questions at theycoinditpod.com or find us on Instagram, Twitter, at TCI Mad Men Pod. We've got a lot more Mad Men to get to, and we can't wait. See you next episode. Guests all always care.